we're live. Hello. Hello. Welcome all generational change. It is Wednesday afternoon yet again. We're here in the noon and I am Jen. I'm Peter and I am in, I am looking out at a lake or not a lake. I guess it's a, an inlet, an inlet. Uh, we learned about all those wonderful uh, geographical terms when we were in grade school. So I'm seeing how well uh, that uh, comes back to me now. But it's good to see you. Uh, I will be, it's amazing, my two ships passing in the night. You're back in Florida. I'm out of town. But I will be back in town for our next show, which will be on Monday. Well, I won't even be here for the next two shows. So eventually one of these days we will uh, <laughs> we'll cross back. <laughs> We'll be here again Monday, the, what is it, 16th? Is that the it, it makes it look like our show really has a lot going on because we've got, you know, we're not just in studio together. We're in separate places. So we've got two, two screenshots going at one time. But obviously, we've got a lot to cover today. Um, it was a very interesting night, as you know. Uh, on the good side, uh, three great things happened. First was Corey Bush, Jen's friend and former slate mate in Missouri's first congressional district in St. Louis was able to win re-election against another monsoon of corporate money funding a state senator, I think the gentleman was, uh, to try to unseat her. Didn't work. In fact, she won very easily. Uh, Rashida Tlaib won her re-election in Michigan's 12th, I believe, congressional district. And the APAC-led group by Bakari Sellers, um, I don't remember what the exact total was that they got thrown into the, uh, to the election, but it was a lot of money. Uh, didn't work. Uh, and then, of course, the biggest one of them all, Kansas, state of Kansas, the middle of our country. By an overwhelming margin, I believe by almost 30 points, I could be a little off on that number. I haven't checked the final totals, but about 30 points, the... The Kansas voters voted overwhelmingly to codify Roe v. Wade. So that's a big deal. And I think that that sort of sets a lot of precedent going into the midterms. Um, I think the GOP, as I had said at the time, I think they bit off more than they could chew. I think they made a colossal miscalculation thinking that this thing wouldn't backfire. Because now, even if you think it's just liberal women that believe that women have a right to choose, no, it's most women. Most women do believe in a woman's right to choose. The thing that I discovered over the course of this odyssey, if you will, of trying to take away women's rights, particularly that of body autonomy, which I thought was so very interesting, is the fact that so many men <clears throat> felt the need to share their opinion about this issue, that it was their right to tell a woman what to do with her body. And I'm just thinking, how, how that computes, I don't know. Uh, but it really says a lot about why there's this constant fighting that women have to go through when it comes to bodily autonomy, just rights in general. It really is amazing how many men think it's their right to control women. And so when a woman says it's just controlling a woman's body, no, it's just controlling women. That's all it is. It's just, you know, they, they don't want women to have freedom. They don't want women to have casual sex. There's a lot of things that they don't want women to do. And so having this control, uh, you know, it, it, it really does make uh, it, it does make a big difference when the votes don't lie. And in this case, it was overwhelming in their favor. 
But of course, the, the one bad note that we have to mention is the fact that uh, congressional representative in Michigan's 11th district, Andy Levin, was unseated uh, by Haley Stevens. They were both con- Congress uh, Congress people who had a merging district. Um, but this district obviously became um, a very, very serious uh point of contention because APAC decided to put $4.8 million behind Haley to unseat Andy Levin. And also something that I discovered today, uh, apparently Emily's list put even more money to the tune of $5.3 million behind Haley Stevens to unseat Andy Levin. They can't put all of the money all of the time into all of the different races, but at any one time, they're going to knock off somebody that they really want to get out of office. But the more people that get involved, that run for office, the harder it's going to be for them to get the results that they're looking for, which is this, you know, you know, this unrelenting support of Israel and everything that they do. They can do no wrong. Uh, It's a really, really big problem. But. With that said, uh, Jen, are you still there? I don't. I think Jen, Jen may have hopped off for a minute. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna hang tight for one second. I think Jen had to restart her computer because our wonderful guest Sam Lawrence from Ohio, who you have all had the privilege of hearing from before. Uh, Sam Cow is also on with him. Uh, it's very inspiring when we see members of Gen Z running for office, especially state house seats. In a state like Ohio, where it really is supposed to be a representation of the entire country, I've always maintained that Ohio really is a slice of Americana in every conceivable capacity, uh, from the very progressive to the very conservative and working class and everything in between. And it's surrounded by multiple states. You get a little bit of everything from the mid-Atlantic to even elements of the South, bluegrass South, uh, the heartland, and obviously the And so it is very important, um, you know, so Jen is restarting her computer, so just bear with us for one second. Um, But this is obviously very important because a lot of Gen Z and and millennials as well, I can include myself in that capacity, you know, we're going to be suffering mightily from a lot of the effects of, you know, a lot of uh, generations past that have refused to make any amends to the you know, policies that have been in place for a long time. Ohio is a great example of a lot of the issues that exist there. Gerrymandering, of course, is a huge problem with the GOP. It's considered, I believe, the most egregious gerrymandered state in the U.S. So that's really saying something. And now when you have young blood getting involved at, and in Sam's case, at the tender age of 19, I mean, talk about really not pulling any punches, getting right in on the ground floor And regardless of what the outcome of this election will be, he is setting himself up for a very bright future. We need more of that. Uh, All too often, we spend a lot of time pontificating about why things are the way that they are. How can we make them better? There's a lot of talk and not enough action. In fact, there is this degree of action that is coming from the youth movement right now. And One thing I will point out before we bring Sam in, and Jen should be here in a minute. You know, we saw the other day, uh, we had, as many of you have known, a handful of members from uh, Gen Z for Change. And one of the, what I would call one of the true leaders of that group is Olivia Giuliana, who is based in, I believe she's in Austin, if I'm not mistaken. 
And she got into an argument the other day with representative, of course, representative Matt Gates, who just can't get his ass out of Congress fast enough, uh, basically chiding the fact that there are women that he deems non-desirable that fight for women's bodily autonomy. Uh, Olivia turned that negative around and turned it into a massive positive by raising over a million dollars for local nonprofit organizations helping women with bodily autonomy. That's how you fight fire with fire. It isn't about going back to him and telling him what a douchebag, beavis and butthead looking guy that he is, which he is, of course. But it's how you transform a negative into a real positive. He wants to go out there and run his mouth. OK, great. So we're going to turn that around and now we're going to flip it on its head and turn it into something that's beneficial for our side. So needless to say, that is how you can really take advantage of this backwards thinking line of, you know, approach when it comes to politics. Uh, And the idea that one is going to judge a person based on their looks as to whether or not a woman has a right to choose or get an abortion. But like I said, it worked out in an exceptionally positive way. And that's how you have to take advantage of the situation. When Jen ran for Congress, there were many of instances where people were bad mouthing her and saying negative things. How dare you run against Debbie Wasserman Schultz? How dare you do this and do that? And we always found a way to turn it around and do fundraising off of that. Always try to turn the negative into a positive. That's what we have to do. Telling people, cursing them out, telling them that they're terrible, as we often see in social media, that it's just an it's an easier approach. Uh, you know, to basically get down, they say when we go, when they go low, we go higher, you know, get down in the weeds with them. Not when it comes to issues that are really important to us that we're facing on a daily basis. It is infinitely more important that we fight this fire the right way, which is to basically show how these individuals are impeding progress. Not about telling them that they're scum or that they stink. It's about showing how their method and what they are advocating for is not actually helping. And it's sort of, it's more or less an indication as to what just happened last night, as far as I can tell. And obviously with Corey Bush and Rashida Tlaib winning their reelection, that's important. Representatives, they do come and go. We know that. The fact that Kansas, blood red Kansas, which usually goes for the GOP. If I remember correctly, I think Trump won Kansas by like 70% of the vote. And the fact that you can almost flip that number on its head, and that is the number within which Kansas voted to protect a woman's right to choose, that's going to play major dividends going forward with a lot of other states as we hit the midterms. Now, will it have that overall effect when it comes to the vote? I don't know. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but we're certainly going to find out. What we are going to find out now is just how much of an impact Gen Z is going to have, because Lord knows our next guest is somebody who is doing a fantastic job in Ohio and is probably inspiring a lot of other people throughout the country to do the same. So without further ado, he is running. I don't want to get this wrong because I have a propensity to not get the number right, but I believe. Oh, it's just somewhere in Ohio. He's somewhere in Ohio. He's down. District, District 47, I believe, is the number. I just want to make sure that I am getting that correct. I don't want to not get that right. Yes, I was right. 
He is running for State House District 47 in Ohio. You know him, you love him. He is a Gen Z leader, if there ever was one. Sam Lawrence, welcome back to Generational Change. Hi. Hey, Peter. Hey, Jen. Thank you guys so much for having me back in the pod. I could not wait to come back. No, it's great. I'm sorry. I'm having technical difficulties. And because I'm the host, Peter sort of just stuck without access to do anything without me here. And I'm having serious technical difficulties. So I just want to apologize for that in advance. No worries. But Peter so, got to talk me up for a few minutes there. So I'm not mad. All about right. It. Good. Good. How's it going? Things are going really well. We've had a few big developments since I was on last. Uh, first of all, we had our pre-primary fundraising deadline. So if you didn't know, uh, Ohio's state legislative primary was last night. It was pushed back due uh, to the Ohio GOP's inability to have uh, fair maps. Essentially, we're still running with unfair maps. We had that primary last night. Uh, and with that, there was a pre-primary filing deadline. Um, our campaign has outraised any candidate that's been here that I can remember, any candidate that's been here that uh, anybody else can remember on the Democratic side. We actually outraised the past two uh, by 50% their entire cycle. And again, this is the pre-primary report. Fundraising is looking really good. Also, we've pulled in a big, uh, a few big endorsements. I've gotten the support of both U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown and our own minority leader in the Ohio House, Allison Russo, whom I happened to work for last year. Uh, and then last night we won our primary. It was uncontested, uh, would have been a hard one for me to lose, uh, but those are just some of the things going on in my life right now. And it's looking really good from a campaign standpoint. That's fantastic. And of course, Sherrod Brown is one of the true few you know, solid senators on Capitol Hill. So having his support obviously makes a significant difference in terms of what you'll be able to do as far as additional fundraising, as well as ground game is concerned. How are things looking, obviously, as we head to the general in just over three months time? Just over three months. Things are looking good. And I think you're right. I do want to comment on Sherrod. Uh, Sherrod is a Democrat who proved he can win in rural Ohio. He's won Ohio for years. Again, Barack Obama won Ohio twice. It used to be considered a swing state. They did a study uh, comparing the fringe counties of Cincinnati, Butler being one of them, to the fringe counties of Detroit. And the fringe counties of Detroit uh, went bluer by double digits. Uh, so essentially, we need strong candidates to run strong campaigns supported by the top of our ticket and the top Democrats here in Ohio to win back these rural areas. Uh, to answer your second question, things are looking really, really good. Uh, our team is massive. We are recruiting volunteers every single day. Uh, I'm meeting new people uh, going and really getting into the roots of these communities, whether that be going into somebody's living room and sitting down and chatting with them, grabbing with uh, grabbing coffee with local leaders, connecting with other candidates even uh, in my area. That's also one thing I want to point out. Uh, when we had Sam Cow on last time, we talked a little bit about how all of the candidates in Ohio were really connecting. That's only gotten stronger since the last time you guys had me on. Uh, I We pretty much all have constant contact with each other and each other's teams. Statehouse candidates like myself, all the way up to the top of the, top of the ticket with Tim Ryan and Nan Whaley. Building that coalition is extremely important, especially for non-corporate candidates. Uh, having a slate that has a common goal really goes a long way, cross-pollination. Not everybody can be in your district, but if everybody knows who's on the same slate, creates a greater pool of individuals who can phone bank and text bank. And that in itself makes a significant difference. Uh, we've obviously seen a lot, um, obviously over the past several weeks, I think last night was a great indication of kind of where a lot of things are going. The corporate establishment really tried to 
go to task and take out representatives Rashida Tlaib just north in Ohio and in, in, uh, Michigan, and then obviously uh, Representative Cory Bush out in St. Louis. Uh, it did not work. And then, of course, we saw in Kansas they were able to codify Roe v. Wade in a. I mean, listen, there are red states and then there are red states like Kansas. That's about that's pretty much blood red. And the fact that they didn't just codify it by a narrow margin, they did it by a wide margin. And to me, I think that says a lot about the direction that the country's going. And I'd love to see the vote splits in terms of the age of people who were voting. Um, I would imagine that there was a huge turnout uh, you know, regarding millennials and Gen Zers, among others. And now we look to what has transpired recently, as I had mentioned, about what happened with Olivia Giuliano as part of Gen Z for Change and the way that she was able to take a very, in, in, with just a, such an insensitive negative coming from a, we'll just say, a really not so good representative in Matt Gates, But she turned it into such a positive that it really made an incredible difference where you're talking about somebody who could have just went back and gotten, you know, a thousand, two thousand retweets and 10,000 likes by making a smart aleck comment and saying, oh, I'm going to get you. No, what she decided was, no, actually, I'm going to make you pay for this. And he did. And so what is your overall thoughts about what's what's been happening lately, especially with the with the with, with the, what I would call the surge of progressive minded millennials and Gen Zers, as we've seen in the recent elections and the recent events? Yeah, Peter. I mean, I really could not agree more. Uh, last night was a huge victory in a lot of areas. Kansas obviously being the most notable one. The polls were wrong and a lot of the people looking from the outside in were wrong. Uh, I think you have kind of a mass awakening happening where people all across this country are realizing the Republican Party is aim aiming at one thing right now, and that is to take away as many of your rights as possible, especially uh, if you are a woman. And that's that's just how it is. And it's terrible that that's the way it is. Obviously, unfortunately, Andy Levin was unseated last night. But you're right. Uh, we did have uh, Rashida Tlaib, Cory Bush, others winning their primaries and going on to give us strong progressive candidates going into November. Yeah, as we're talking about women's rights, I don't know if anybody's paying attention to the chat, but uh, I was seeing suggestions for vasectomy. So I thought I would chime in with a little promo for my husband's urology practice. So I put that number in the chat. Anybody in Broward interested? Give him a call. <laughs> what is it going to take from your perspective? Because obviously it's going to be a huge, huge task. Uh, certainly the better uh, that, you know, Congressman Ryan does at the top of the ticket for Senate will pay dividends. Uh, obviously, the ability to get out the vote in uh, the rural part of the state is going to make a difference. From what I've seen, um, Representative Ryan has been doing very well in fundraising compared to uh, J.D. Vance. So that obviously will help with a lot of down ballot races, you would assume. So from your perspective, in terms of where the campaign stands right now, what is it going to take in order for you to potentially pull off what would be considered a significant upset, but one that isn't impossible as far as I can see? Yeah, and I like the way you put that, Peter, which is a significant upset, but entirely possible. When you look at all of the districts here in Ohio, so many of them are in really rural areas covering multiple counties. I've got a third of Butler County, which is the 10th most populated county in the state. So again, uh, there is room to make up ground here. I also want to comment, uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Congressman Ryan has been doing an amazing job. I get to connect with him anytime he comes 
down here to Southwest Ohio. But again, he is uh, pushing us from the top of the ticket, just like we are pushing him from the bottom of the ticket up. Uh, what it takes to win, it's going to take all of these components coming together. So obviously you can look at our pre-primary filing report and you can say, oh, he did pretty well fundraising. You can look at our ground game. Uh, all of the volunteers were recruiting, all of the doors were knocking, the events were having, and you could say, okay, those are really good. What it's going to take for me to win is, first of all, this national attention we've garnered. We need to expand that. Currently, my opponent, Sarah Carruthers, uh, she's barely on social media. She's barely anywhere. Uh, and so, therefore, we are controlling the narrative. Uh, we can really, really tell people why she has been corrupt in office, how she has been corrupt in office, and how we have this fresh voice to kick her out of office. So, again, uh, I think the the main thing we need to have going forward is just this momentum that my campaign has kept up. Oh, uh, you're on mute, Jen. Good catch. I'm having so much problems today. <clears throat> I think it's really important that you're building this huge coalition. And I think like the fact that you're running for state office and you're sort of being able to cross pollinate with the people that are running for federal seats, I think is really important. I think that it really adds credibility to the movement when people see a big slate, even if it's not an official slate, but they see this sort of like that this is a coalition of people. I think it makes a lot of people feel more secure. And um, yeah, I, I think it's a really smart way to go about what you guys are doing. Yeah. And uh, in Ohio, in prior years, you you have kind of seen this trend where year after year, there would be less and less Democrats running in some of these rural seats. This year, we haven't got all of them, but there are 99 seats in the Ohio House and we have got a slate. People are excited. Uh the, the one thing I've seen and I've heard from people, obviously, I did not have a primary challenger. A lot of my friends in uh, similar candidates, my colleagues, uh, they did. And that's something voters have not experienced. They've never had a Democratic primary. They've barely even had a Democrat. So, again, uh, reaching out to these people in areas where they might have been forgotten, left behind by the political system, but also ignored by our candidates. I think that's what's going to win us a state like Ohio. Yeah, I think that that's a really smart approach for sure. Uh, I, excuse me. Declan, I know that's you. Please stop. Anyway, <laughs> I know it's him. Well, I, I, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure that the people that you choose to bring onto your campaign are probably more effective and cost less money. Uh, it is amazing how effective social media has become, particularly for Gen Z. Now, of course, the way that we see it, and I think that this is true for uh, anything regarding social media and how you get to the most people. Twitter is basically how you connect with uh, influencers, if you will. I don't think Twitter is in any way a reflection of where people actually stand. I think there is way too much of the uh, Silicon Valley bot system, if you will, that affects you know what gets promoted, what doesn't get promoted. But what I do believe is that Facebook is the best place to reach older voters. I believe that Instagram is the best place to reach the widest swath of voters. And I believe that TikTok is the best place to reach millennials and Gen Zers. What have you experienced using social media and how has that played a role in your campaign? I am so glad you asked me that question, Peter, because I will tell you, I have been on interviews and podcasts and nobody asks about social media. Uh, first of all, I fully understand that social media itself cannot win you an election. And I think you're right that especially Twitter doesn't exactly always uh, conform to where everybody actually stands. However, A, you can fundraise off of social media, and B, uh, campaign strategists, I don't think, have, have yet realized social media is the new way people communicate. The very first thing you do, 
when you don't know what to do is pick up your phone, open Twitter, open Instagram. Uh, my campaign is extremely active on social media. We're launching our TikTok here in the next few weeks. Obviously, uh, Twitter is our biggest platform for anyone listening. My Twitter handle is Sam for Ohio. I would love if you went and followed it. We're almost at 50,000 followers. And again, that's crazy for a state representative race in Ohio. Uh, we are bringing the state and also this national attention to a race where if Sarah Carruthers was running on a national platform, she'd be getting bashed by every Democrat because she is so corrupt. However, we're not bringing the issues to the voters, or at least we haven't in past years. And that's what social media is helping us do this year. Yeah, so we had a question, um, and I think the answer is yes, but the question was, is Sam of the Bernie platform? That's an interesting question. First of all, (laughs) I, (laughs) I love Bernie Sanders. I think Bernie is First of all, one of the most effective senators, that's just data driven. But second of all, one of my favorite senators, he and I might disagree politically on a lot of things. I would say he's traditionally a little more left than I am. But you also have to consider the fact I'm running in southwest Ohio. Uh, I think somebody put it best when they said, you look like you've put together a campaign that's marketing a fairly left set of values as a common sense platform. We don't have to go all the way to the end. I'm fairly progressive. But again, if you can market these issues as what they are, common sense, then you can get across party lines to independents and even some Republicans. So am I the Bernie platform? No, not totally. Do I agree with Bernie Sanders on some things? Of course. I think he's great. Right. I mean, you're 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 of the idea that people should have a living wage in health care. Of course. Okay, so so that I think that that's what that person was kind of getting at, because for me, it's do you believe we're entitled to health care? And do you believe people are entitled to a life with dignity? That's how I view the Bernie platform in general. Not every policy, not you know every specific thing, but are those your values? I think it's interesting. And I think, first of all, I will push back a little bit because I think it's good to have these discussions. I'm not the biggest fan of Medicare for all right off the bat. Uh, I was a big supporter of Pete Buttigieg in his primary uh, Medicare for all who want it was his platform. And essentially what Pete said was, if this works like it's supposed to, essentially it will eventually transform into Medicare for all once everybody realizes that this government option is better than private health care. It'll also fuel competition in the market. That's more of a national issue and less of a state one. Uh, But of course, for those who don't have access to health care, underinsured, uninsured, yes, the government needs to be doing everything we can to get them the health care they need. Yeah, I want to remind people, you know, we're about non-corporate candidates. And I've said it all along that if people are running to represent their constituents, they don't need to agree with us on everything. They just need to be representing their constituents. And so I think that and especially in places where we really need to reach across to the right populist side of things that, you know, the people that are more conservative, but labor oriented. And this is very important. So I don't have a barometer like that. You know, I mean, obviously, I'm hoping that as you grow up and as you wisen, that you will understand some of these things. But um, yeah, I don't have any I don't have any problem as long as you're not taking corporate money. It's all good with me. That's the, the three unifying issues of our time, no matter where you stand on the political spectrum, is being able to live, which means a living wage, being able to have health care and dealing with this climate crisis. And if you can unite behind those three, uh, I think it's very easy to get where you need to go. Um, obviously, we do not support uh, Buttigieg, but that's OK. We can't agree on everything. Um, what I do believe is where you're coming from is actually fairly sensible because 
everybody, you know, kind of wants an all or nothing proposition when it comes to healthcare. And the reality is you've got to get something off the ground somewhere. Now, whether that is a public option, which is something we should have had over a decade ago, hmm. whether it is pushing forward a statewide single payer healthcare system in a state like California, New York, obviously the work that whole Washington is doing in Washington state is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and having a ballot initiative of sorts, you know, that to me is really where we're going to be able to break through. Something as simple as this wedding that I went to uh, near Martha's Vineyard over the weekend in Massachusetts and the amount of traffic that you hit from Boston going out to the Cape. If you had a high speed rail just from Boston to the Cape, the amount of carbon footprint reduction, the amount of traffic on the road, the amount of money saved, everything adds up. Everything, logistically speaking, makes all kinds of sense. Those are the types of conversations we need to be having. And even though, you know, we are obviously supporters of universal health care, Medicare for all, everyone's going to have a different way of seeing it, even though there is this idea. It's kind of like, you know, I'm sure plenty of people will be seen Southwest Ohio that are big Trump supporters. You don't have to support Donald Trump, but you don't have to tell people that are Trump supporters that they're terrible people. You figure out ways to mend those fences and get to the conclusion that, hey, these issues we're talking about, most of us are absolutely going to benefit from. And I think what you're doing is absolutely the right approach. And we are in a different part of the country. What may seem sensible here is maybe not as sensible there. And you have to approach it with what is in the best interest of the more Midwestern, moderate approach to all types of electoral politics. Is that fair to say? I think that's extremely fair. And I think you made a, a few really good points there. First of all, uh, I think the environment is easily the biggest issue that we are all coming together on and we are going to come together on more in the future. It is my number one issue. It is what I am most focused on. I know you can do a little less at the state level that you can at a national level. But to, to say this is not a climate emergency, frankly, it's bullshit. I'm sorry, but it's bullshit. Uh, there are people who more recently, uh, climate change has come into the fold as factual and there have been less people actually denying it. But you still have people that don't want to use everything we have to fight it. And that's just not the way we have to go about it. Absolutely. It better. Jen, uh, website? Uh, yes. What? Where can people help you, Sam? Where can people help me? Well, first of all, I actually do want to go backwards just a minute and talk a little bit about uh, universal health care more. So first of all, hey, let me say, we, we, here, you got to just quickly wrap just you got to. Uh, yeah, no, 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 it's OK. But like that's yeah, you got to okay, just so, wrap. Well, so that's I just want to give people your of website. Course. You guys can all find me at Sam for Ohio on all of my social medias. Uh, they will have a donate link. That's where you can help me most, especially if you are out of state. I would love your support. If you're in my district, I would love your vote. And again, Jen and Peter, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And if you do have a quick thought, uh, share it real yeah. quick on universal health care. Yeah. Again, very quickly. First of all, I think universal health care is infinitely better than what we have now. And so if that's what we were moving towards, I would support it. Personally, I prefer Buttigieg's plan, but that doesn't mean we can't have these conversations, right? Oh, that's absolutely. the point I wanted to make. Oh, listen, absolutely. You, you know, we... Uh, we, we do everything in our capacity on this channel to be as nonpartisan as humanly possible. I think it's essential because it's the only way we're going to get where we want to go. If we find reasons not to get along, then that's all the more reason why we're not going to get to where we need to go. But with that said, we very much appreciate you always coming on. You're doing fantastic work out in Southwest Ohio. We definitely look forward to continuing this conversation going forward. And guys, go to SanforOhio.com, lend a hand if you can. 
And, and I have no doubt. You'll come back. You'll come back as a, as a state rep. we get closer to the election, let's definitely have one more conversation. For I you. would love that. Thank you, guys. I appreciate right. it. Bye, Sam. Thank you, Sam. He's lovely. I swear he looks like young Leonardo DiCaprio to me. He I'm really sure reminds he me of Leo from The Growing Pains. I'm sure he will that. Guys, listen. If we... What you have to understand is that if our attitude was, oh, yeah, Buttigieg, that's exactly who we're at. No, we can agree to disagree that there's nothing wrong with that. Telling people right. that he's a sellout or that he can get lost. It's like well, you're never getting universal health care if you have that. Attitude. Well, and the yeah. thing is, is that if somebody is not taking corporate money, then mm-hmm. that is how yeah. this is supposed to work. Well, then if somebody isn't representing their people, then they can be voted out. And they're not having corporate money back them. So that's just, to me, that's how you naturally get the people that best represent an area. And it doesn't have to be an area that agrees with you. Speaking of corporate money, and if anybody knows anything about corporate money, it is the queen bee herself, Madam Speaker Pelosi, uh, who, has, who has to make her wonderful, controversial trip out to Taiwan. I have no doubt, as Jen and I were talking about last night, that it is all financially motivated. Why the well, hell she needs to raise the money to get the husband's uh, – he's being prosecuted today for hey, his so, you know, you got to – you know, those semiconductors, it's a really important thing. I mean, maybe the chips that can't go through otherwise. But, hey, if we start World War III with China, what's the big deal? At least they'll make a few other – a few hundred million more dollars, right? So who better to come on and talk about this than somebody who we consider to be one of the great – great journalists. And we use that term very seriously. Very seriously, because there's very few of them. So just saying. Mm, Indeed it is. But as you know, he is the editor of Shatterproof. He has been on multiple times before. He's a kick-ass guy. You know him, you love him. Kevin Gostola, welcome back to Generational Change. Are Um, you muted? Of course, you are muted, but now you won't be. Nope. Something is awry, and he's not muted for me. He's muted. Wait, no, you can hear. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm not the one who who controlled it. Like, I didn't mute him. There we can you hear go. you now. Okay, all you have to do is make sure you have the right microphone set. Okay, and that's how that's how this technology can work. So, <laughs> uh, it's good to talk with both of you. Thanks for having me back. Always, always. So, you know, Peter and I, of course, have assumed that anything regarding Nancy Pelosi and anything is really about her own money, her own power, her own thing. So, you know, hearing that she's really going there for this meeting, not remotely surprising. The fact that she disregards everything else in doing so, also not surprising. So I'm really interested to hear what your take is on all of this stuff with her. Well, she has some really good stock options, and I, th- I hear that she had to go to Taiwan so that she could make sure that she continues to benefit from this insider trading that she's uh, that she's doing, which nobody will stop. Look, I think that this is a really serious provocation, and I make no judgments and I claim no expertise on China and its policies toward the world. I do not apologize for any alleged human rights violations that people are hung up on and fixated over rightfully, or perhaps maybe we blew them up out of proportions. I don't know. I don't feel like I'm educated enough because I'm not part of China's society. So it, I, I take the 
maybe you've seen the the statement from Noam Chomsky that I think is a universal principle in which I approach my work on the U.S. government, which is that I'm a citizen. I have to be concerned about what the U.S. government does. I don't live in China, so I can't really dictate what China does. I can't really participate in, you know, even if you think that it's just totally, totally authoritarian and nobody has any say in what that government does, I can't do anything to mobilize people in order to change the Chinese government. I don't live there. The same goes for Russia. I can't do anything to overthrow Vladimir Putin from inside Russia. So all I can do is look at what the U.S. proposes as a way of dealing with or countering China or existing with China. Uh, we all have to recognize that China has as much power, if not more power in some degrees than us. And I I believe what I find to be the most dangerous about what Nancy Pelosi did, and I said this in a tweet that I shared, which is that we're unwilling to recognize the limits of our power. And I think we really are coming to the end of a phase. And, and what the U.S. is unwilling to recognize is that we have a multipolar world now. And what we've seen with China, and I would, I would argue that this is a continuation of something that is really troubling that was unfolding between January and February before Russia invaded Ukraine is, is that we, we, we do not have this willingness to show restraint and uh, we engage in these provocations. And when powers react in the way that you would expect that they would, we go, oh, we didn't do nothing. What are they doing? Like we act like it's it came out of the blue that they are reacting to something, uh, even though all along there were warnings from experts that this would provoke uh, a response and that we would have to deal with it and that there would be consequences for our actions. But it just seems like Pelosi, I'd say the Biden White House, since they did nothing to stop Pelosi, even though the Pentagon, the people should know the Pentagon themselves said that this was a bad idea for Nancy Pelosi to get on a plane and go to Taiwan. And she did it anyway. And so uh, the Pentagon didn't stop her, even though they made this warning. The uh, Biden White House wouldn't get on a phone, wouldn't even make a phone call to Nancy Pelosi and tell her, don't go to Taiwan right now. That's a bad idea. And I, th this is alarming to me because there are so many things that can happen after uh, this moment, uh, and, and we're starting to see them. But I'll, I'll stop here, and then there's more I can share. But I'll let you get back into this. Yeah. Well, speaking with Kevin Costola, managing editor, Shadowproof. You know, it, it to me, there isn't much that I can say other than I, I just try to observe in a very reasonable, objective, you know, point of view. But the fact that you've got multiple Chinese warships surrounding the Taiwanese island, to me, says China's not messing around. And one thing China can do that Russia can't do is China can tank our economy. Yep. And if you think they can, you find out just how quickly all of Clinton's wonderful trade deals from NAFTA and normal trade relations with China can actually be brought to its knees if the Chinese communist government finally decides, yeah, we've had enough. We can stand on our own two feet. And there is nothing we can do because this is, again, at a time when our country is extremely vulnerable due to the inflation crisis. 
and the fact that we do have a president and an administration right now that really has no idea how to deal with all these things. So what are your thoughts about potentially, you know, just poking the bear? Uh, I, I almost wonder what is Pelosi's motivation? Why wasn't there anybody telling her directly, this is not a good idea. We don't, we've, we're already way too knee deep in what's going on in Ukraine. Do we really want to get involved here with a country that can easily tip the balance of power across the globe? And so uh, this is antagonism. It's also agitation on the part of Nancy Pelosi and, uh, and Democrats and their support within the Republican Party. So I think it's certainly true that uh, I've seen the joke going around that people are not really sure how to think of this if they are of the red stripe because uh, they don't like Nancy Pelosi. So this is a nice time to join in a pile on, but they also don't like China. So which way are they supposed to go if they're a Republican? But that's trivial. I'll set that aside. There, Along with this trip, there was a bill that was marked up uh, by the Foreign Relations Committee, I believe, from everyone's favorite corrupt New Jersey senator, Bob Menendez, Mr. Menendez, Mr. Menendez, somehow still in office, somehow survived a corruption trial. And uh, then there's Lindsey Graham. And together, uh, Lindsey Graham and Menendez uh, have revealed or unveiled this Taiwan Policy Act. Uh, I just made a few notes here because I think this was important to, to get in here um, uh, because they've added that they're going to increase military support to Taiwan. So we're going to see more of what we've seen with Ukraine. And they always say it's just for defense. It's just it's just for defense. But what people should understand is we've had a policy of one China. And then under that one China policy, there's been two systems. So China makes their own policies. They, they govern their people in the mainland. Taiwan takes care of their own people. They function independently, but they're part of the Republic of China. And so it's been one China, two systems. This goes back to the 1970s. And there's a, success, a secessionist movement in Taipei that says that uh, we don't want to do this anymore. We would like to be independent from China. And they've aligned with forces within the U.S. government. Uh, they have support within parts of U.S. intelligence agencies. They have support uh, within factions of the U.S. State Department. I think there's a big tussle going on between different schools of thought here. And they're trying to pull the U.S. in this direction of throwing their weight entirely behind this secessionist movement. The problem being is that it'll upend the status quo that has really kept things stable through that part of the world and I'd say the entire world for a number of decades. So this bill then proposes that they're going to expand the role for Taipei to be in international organizations. They want to make them some kind of like uh, unofficial member of NATO because that's what we do now. Whenever we want to uh, antagonize a country that we're challenging, we'll just make their neighbors a part of NATO. And then they want to outline uh, when Beijing would be sanctioned if they cross, you know, wh whatever line. It's ambiguous, but it would basically force a uh, president, whether it's Biden or whoever is elected after he's no longer president, then someone would be required to impose sanctions on China, which of course then sets off the kind of responses that we've seen 
from the Russian government. It also sets off the kind of responses um, that, that we saw when Donald Trump was claiming that he could win a trade war, which is one of the most ridiculous, nonsensical things that we had to sit through. And it failed. It utterly failed. You know, he said he was going to create jobs. We lost 200 to 300,000 jobs. He said that, um, you know, he, he basically said that it was going to be something that would be great to you know, show China that we could withstand all of this. The costs of goods just escalated. China just raised their prices. So uh, it's this is something that people need to consider. And what I'm troubled by is, you know, to me, I'm a realist, like, but not in the sense of like somebody who believes in the project of the United States and our, our, our quest to dominate and control all parts of the world. But I, I just, I, re I really and truly believe that whatever we do is going to invite a reaction. And, and, and so we ought to recognize that if we're going to do it, that those come with a set of consequences if we're going to go down particular paths. But there's these idealists that increasingly dominate the, the, the Democratic Party, um, people like Samantha Power, who believe in this doctrine of responsibility to protect, which is so, so much bullshit because they don't always protect like every single country. Like, you can't go into every single country that would need the U.S. military or any kind of peacekeeping force to come in and save it. So very clearly, it's it's all about what the U.S. agenda is and who it wants to counter. And we've de we've determined that the the next era after the war on terrorism, the global war on terrorism, which is in its twilight years. I mean, we did drone strike Ayman Zawahiri this last the oh, this last week, but that's just sort of like a holdover of a, of a bygone era at this point. The real thing that's going to define the next chapter of foreign policy is great power competition. And that's why they got into it with Russia. That's why we're, it seems like that's not good enough that they're going to do what military contractors and these, these, you know, the weapons companies want, and they would like to be able to arm Taipei and invite conflict. It just does seem like, you know, there used to be these red lines that would hold back what officials would do in U.S. government. And now that doesn't deter it. It doesn't discourage. It's it's almost like, oh, there will be conflict. And that's what we want, because there will be opportunity. We'll be able to profit. There will be more uh, clarifying moments. Uh, we'll be able to challenge China. And China is going to react in a way that we, in our hubris, believe will turn off every power around it, whether it's South Korea, Japan, any of them. The, like, the countries in the region do a lot of business with China. We seem to have this idea that China is going to lash out at Taiwan, then it'll be alienated, we'll be able to isolate China, and then we'll be able to get those countries to come into our fold, we'll decouple from China, and then China will be in a worse position and we won't be the ones struggling. But I think that's 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 quite arrogant of us to believe that we could pull off something like that. Well, I find it interesting that in one little 
piece there, you said two very important words, which are hubris and arrogant. And, and that is the ultimate downfall of the empire. So, you know, we're watching it. But it, what's interesting is people look at this Nancy Pelosi thing like, oh, that's so provocative. Well, yeah, it is. But so is the fact that we have warships like lining, lining China and Russia all the time. Like people don't really understand that we're always provoking those countries. Always. We are waiting for one of them to do something defensive. We will claim it's offensive and that will be our manufacturer consent. So we sit there on their borders, egging them on all the time. So to me, the Nancy Pelosi thing is sort of like sort of the last straw potentially. Um, and just the total arrogance of her willingness to just go do that. This is up there with me as when Trump decided to move the embassy to Jerusalem. Yep. And this is one of those things where you're just going in completely tone deaf. You're not getting the situation and you're just doing what you're doing, thinking, I, I don't even know what, just total arrogance. And no one can touch her. I mean, she's just sitting there com- committing insider trading openly and nobody does anything. So, you know, why are we surprised that she would go and instigate a fight with China? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the the kind of joke that Medea Benjamin makes, uh, from a great activist, Code Pink. Uh, yeah. But we're always worked up about China having their warships in the South China Sea. China warships in the South China Sea. <laughs> like they should allow, they should be able to be in the South China Sea. And she just repeats that over and over again to emphasize the ridiculousness and, you know, as an American, it's kind of an odd thing for me to get worked up over China having warships in bodies of water surrounding their country in order to assert their power when that's exactly what the United States does uh, throughout the Caribbean, throughout Latin America, as well as other parts of the world and including in that area and it's it's not like we have any claim to that region and you know my personal belief is not real I'm not trying to cop out here but my personal belief is you know if if they want independence that's something for those people to fight and I don't know if they can have it but if they want to be liberated that's that's their struggle and I'm not trying to just be a total like Rand Paul libertarian here but I'm just saying that it's it means something if we're going to commit to it. And I mentioned before I came on the show that there's this really good um, uh, whistleblower named Franz Gale, who was actually punished because he wrote op eds for a Chinese state media paper. Um, he and I think he was on their payroll. He was, he was still in some way doing something for the Pentagon. And France Gale is actually a really well-known whistleblower because during the Iraq war, he stood up to Donald Rumsfeld because the, uh, the, the mine resistant vehicles, the, the, the tanks that were being deployed to Iraq that had soldiers in them. The Pentagon knew that they weren't outfitted well enough to protect soldiers when IEDs blew up, but they weren't doing anything to change the armor so that they could protect soldiers. So he blew the whistle and called them out on it and um, had an impact because when they were exposed, they quickly had to change those vehicles because they knew that they had blood on their hands from the war. In addition to the fact that they're fighting an illegal war and they should not be there, yada, yada, yada. But 
um, you know, he writes a couple of op-eds and he wrote this thing that is really good. I just, if, if, if you'll permit me, I'd like to read just an excerpt of it about what he sure. wrote because he said why the U.S. So the op-ed was why the U.S. will lose a war with China over the Taiwan Island. And by the way, he wrote this in April of 2021. And then he got in trouble with the Pentagon and he ended up losing his position. And I think he lost his pension. But um, so he writes this out and he and he documents it and he makes a really clear case of like why uh, we shouldn't get pulled into it. And part of it is that saving Taiwan from China is never going to be something that's as important to the U.S. as keeping China a part of, uh, sorry, keeping Taiwan a part of China is important to China. So the priority of stopping Taiwan from becoming independent is something China will do everything it can. But the U.S., and if you ask Americans, I just don't think anybody really cares that much. And so he says, uh, another problem is the U.S. has never paid an existential price for violating another nation's sovereignty, leading to our smug sense of military invincibility. However, with Taiwan being a core Chinese priority, that would be a fatal miscalculation. Um, and then, you know, he goes on to uh, note some of the history with Taiwan. But um, and he says, in the end, the prosperous Taiwan people will make every effort to wag the American dog. But Taiwan's fate poses no existential threat to the U.S., and the U.S. should not fall into the trap of paying for their hubris with American blood. However, in view of the violent political polarization of the U.S. at home, an ill-advised foreign war with no path to victory would only serve to accelerate America America's decline. So he, you know, he just he goes through this and he documents what's going to happen, and he and then he wrote a separate op-ed about how um, accompanying whatever plans the U.S. war machine and foreign policy hawks have for China, that uh, they're also going to have to other these people who are here in the United States. And he, he writes about you know, how we're going to see the demonization of, of, of different demographics of people who are linked to China in order to create that fertile ground so that they could justify action, um, you know, We've seen that with Russians. It's happened. Um, I actually objected to it because I don't really believe that they hold the kind of power or cultural position that everyone would think. But we started banning athletes from playing sports because they're Russians. We started banning musicians from playing in orchestras because they're Russians. We started saying if you're an actor or filmmaker, but I just like to me that just isolates us and makes us more divided as a people. Those links are supposed to help us de-escalate and prevent wars from becoming perpetual. Um, and and my, my whole objection to everything from Pelosi on down is that it seems that we are in a world now in which the U.S. demands that we have permanent war with some country. Um, and it is, you know, it is it is that uh, it is that future or yeah, that was laid out by George Orwell in 1984 of like always being at war with Oceania or, you know, finding some country that us as a people can always be fighting. And if it's, you know, if it's not the terrorists in Middle Eastern countries, well, now it's that we're going to have an open ended conflict in a country bordering Russia, or now it's going to be, let's get an entanglement 
with China in Taiwan. I think also what they're doing with their hubris is they're saying that uh, we want to keep replicating the Afghan trap, which I don't really believe that that's something that continues over and over again in history. It's not like it's a model for being able to grow your power as a, as an empire. Um, and by Afghan trap, I of course mean that, you know, the Soviets go into Afghanistan and then you've got uh, senators like Charlie Wilson and other people who are sending weapons to arm the Mujahideen who then later on become the t- part of the terrorist problem, but uh, that we're helping them and we're, pulling Soviet Union into Afghanistan. Well, that's what they were trying to do in Ukraine right now. And they are gambling that Russia is going to get bogged down in Ukraine. And it seems like that's also the gamble that they'll they'll be willing to make with Taiwan is that if we can bring China, China and its forces into Taiwan, um, then we'll get them bogged down in a fight over independence on, on that. And we'll keep funneling weapons and we'll be willing to send foreign fighters, um, maybe give them some NATO support if there's anything we can muster. But, you know, it is, it is crazy to think that while you have what's unfolding in Ukraine, we would get to a point where there would be a parallel war happening in Taiwan potentially, but it could happen. I mean, we should take this all very seriously. Everyone's acting like, oh, well, China doesn't really want a bloody war. They're not going to do it. Yeah, but you know what they're going to do is they're going to start the way that they have. And so, you know, before I leave you, you should know that they have issued sanctions against Taiwan for allowing Pelosi to land her plane. And that means that um, they're no longer allowing, um, I don't know what this means for Taiwan. Uh, but I'm just going to say it, and uh, at some point maybe I'll figure out why they're not allowed to um, export natural sand anymore to uh, China, but they banned that. I guess that might be an indus- industrial thing. No, uh, apparently there's a, apparently there's a sand shortage. That's becoming a problem now uh, for all of these um, man-made in Taiwan? islands. Well, like yeah. the city of Dubai, and then of course, or in Dubai, and then of course uh, the city of Miami. Uh, because of the sea level rise crisis, uh, this has been going on for years where they've okay. been importing sand to negate, um, you know, how much, you know, water is going to recede into uh, the land, which is completely pointless now because anytime it rains for any extended period, it, it, it floods in Miami. And like Jen has pointed out many a times, if we were to deal with a category three plus hurricane to hover over Miami for I don't know, a day? Oh, I don't even think, I don't even think it needs to be a hurricane. I think it's the same as what happened in New Jersey with that superstorm Sandy. That wasn't even really a hurricane. Uh, well, that was like, an, that was on like a category five. But Well, yeah. but it doesn't, it, the point is they're moving slower now. So it doesn't even matter how heavy they are. Yeah. Because if we had even a one sitting over us for days, the sewage would be flooding the streets of Broward County. Like it, the destruction would be way bigger than people. They only think it matters if the winds are really strong. I don't think people really realize just how dangerous it is to allow leadership like Biden, Manchin, Pelosi to continue, Um, because basically people that are, especially Pelosi and Biden that are in the twilight years of their lives, um, they do not care. Uh, I, I guess their goal is just to get as much 
uh, hoard as much uh, family wealth as they possibly can before they depart because they know their time is limited. And yeah, at the detriment of our society, it seems that that's essentially what's happening now. I mean, I thought it was completely asinine that you have these bureaucrats in D.C. that were kicking the hornet's nest of Russia for as long as they were, simply because Hillary could never accept that this country did not want her to be president. And yeah. that's on top of all of the, the legitimate. And, and this is the other thing that never gets talked about. You know, when everybody's always up in arms about Trump saying that the election was rigged and saying that there's no um, there's no evidence and this and that. My attitude is very simple. The 2016 Democratic primary was stolen from Bernie Sanders and heads never rolled as a result of that. Debbie Wasserman Schultz is still sitting in Congress when you allow that type of cheating to be accepted, you allow all kind of cheating to be accepted. And the fact that we're still talking about January 6th, which again still matters because crimes were committed, but we're not talking about where this actually came from and why this is allowing to happen. It's no different than the birther movement about Obama. Everyone thinks that this was Trump. It wasn't. It was Hillary. Hillary started the birther movement and then they ran with it. Anything that the de- Democrats can do, the GOP will do better 10 times over. They'll take one idea and just go run with it. And so right now, all of these distractions, all of these things that are happening, while we are divided in a lot of ways, the unification between the two parties, the fact that it was bad enough that Pelosi is doing this, but that you had Newt Gingrich on national television saying, yeah. this is a good thing. That should scare the living shit out of everybody. Well, he was the one back in 1997 who went. He was the last high-ranking U.S. official to go to Taipei. And he did that. But what the experts are saying, I also just like to give a nod to responsible statecraft. That's where I went to do my studying before I talked with you so that I could sound more like an informed person. But like seriously, I uh, think that they are one of the few think tank operations uh, that have a publication that are pleading common sense, you know, saying things like, oh, you know, if we're going to funnel tens of billions of dollars worth of weapons into Ukraine, we ought to recognize that they are one of the leading global arms traffickers in the world. And that comes at a, at a risk, you know, like those weapons are going to get sold on black markets and appear somewhere and they might be used to kill people, not necessarily in Ukraine. So, you might want to want to do something about that. Might want to have some kind of like safeguard for that fact. Something we are not going to do. So, um, I mean, the last thing I want to make sure I get in here is that the import they, they are curbing imports of fruits and fish to Taiwan uh, or uh, from Taiwan. Um, so that means that they're cutting off uh, or hampering the economy for Taiwan. And they, they've done this before. There have been phases in which there's been tension between Taipei and Beijing, and they just put screws on the economy, make them hurt until they're ready to give it up. And then they go, all right, yeah, you get it. You're part of China. You will be part of China. Are you ready to behave now? Okay, we'll take the, we'll take the sanctions off. And so, uh, you know, my, my biggest fear here is that we're not willing to use incentives to prevent mass suffering from happening to people 
whether it's in Ukraine or Taiwan. You know, if you can point out to me what's happening in Ukraine as a result of Russia, um, and, and let, let's let's when I say that, let me talk about that in terms of before they committed their invasion, Russia. And then if you can point out to me what's bad about China overseeing Taiwan, okay, let's deal with that. Let's incentivize China to change that. But then what happens is we escalate and escalate, we provoke, and then they start taking these actions and they use their power the way that the U.S. would. And then we're so into our, we're so, you know, we're so big, like we don't want to cave into this adversary that we don't do anything to work things back. Like nothing that we've done. My fear is that it'll just be Russia all over again. And what we've done in fighting Russia with this proxy war is we've imposed all these sanctions and then Russia has gone and mimicked that behavior and put the hurt on Europe really badly because like they don't have energy. They're having energy shortages. They're having energy hikes. They have really bad inflation because there's goods that aren't coming that they used to import. So all of that can happen with China. And, And yet going along the way, I don't see how that fits into any clear objective on the part of the US. Like, I don't know what we're trying to get out of doing this to Russia. And I'm afraid that the people who are involved in our government aren't going to have a clear objective if they impose sanctions against China or if they retaliate against China for taking action against Taiwan. And so what you see is you just uh, a spiraling out of control. And, you know, these are powers that have access to nuclear weapons. And it's really troubling that, um, you know, the fact that we don't have much respect and then there may not be dialogue. And when you stop dialoguing with people who are leaders of these countries, that's when really terrible events can happen that potentially end humanity as we know it. This is not an exaggeration. No, I think it's funny, but you were, you were kind of questioning what, what they're trying to do here. And to me, it's so clear. Like when your business is war and weapons, and that's all we do anymore. That's basically all we really contribute to the world anymore. So that's all we're going to do. When all you have is a hammer, all you see is nails. So if our biggest manufacturing empire is our military industrial complex, it's never going to stop because that's all we do. And that's how the majority of the people in this country are making their money at the top. So to me, it's obvious. All of this is just to keep the department, the offense department. I'm not calling it. It's not a defense department. When China's ships are in RC, then we can call it off the Department of Defense. Right now, we are in everyone else's up in everyone's grill. And if any of those places even had like a millionth of what we have next to our country, we'd be like, like going crazy. If you ever want to see every liberal with a Ukraine flag shit their their britches like you've never seen anybody shit britches before, let a dozen Chinese fleet uh, 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 cargo ships with weaponry pull up along the California coastline. Exactly. You'll really see just how tough this country really thinks they are. Then That's how you. other countries live. We have our stuff all up in everybody's business all over the place. And we don't ever see that or hear about it so that whenever anything else happens, 
We're like, oh, we didn't do anything. Yeah, we always want war. We're always oh, doing war. Kevin, there's two points uh, that we want to address before we wrap. The first one is, can you talk about the danger of expanding NATO, which is obviously what is happening right now? And then, of course, we want to conclude with an update on Julian Assange um, regarding his current situation and how that plays a role in what's going on right now in terms of whistleblowers really being able to reveal a lot of the information regarding what's going on in Kiev, in Taiwan, uh, things that are of immense importance that the people who are the thinking people and not just watching corporate media really want to know about what's going on. So if you can talk first about the the danger of continuing to expand NATO at this point. NATO is really a war international organization as, as of this moment. And you know, if you want to defend it on those terms, go right ahead. But like what you were saying, Jen, with I don't call it a defense department anymore. We have to call it an offense department. You know, it's not like NATO when you look at its history in the lead up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it, it's not like they were just laying back as like UN peacekeeping forces ready to deploy to the Congo if they heard that there was like mass rape happening and they have to go save a people from being terrorized by some militant group. You know, no, actually like uh, they were deliberately moving and picking off different countries that used to be part of the Soviet bloc. They were moving closer and closer. They were crossing a red line. They were crossing a red line that, that Russia had that even people like George Kennan, who uh, you know, lived to be more than a hundred years old and was like this esteemed statesman that Colin Powell and Henry Kissinger and all these people who I don't like, and I think that they're awful, but these people respected him. And he said before he died that we ought to respect what Russia had to say about how it saw NATO encircling their country and moving ever so closer as provocative. Again, to use that word, provocative. Like, I mean, I think the more we use it, it's going to be like it doesn't have meaning and we're going to just shrug it off. But we really should take seriously when an, uh, a rival power says that this is provocative. I don't think they're playing around. I don't think we want to find out if they're playing around either. And and the expansion of NATO is is one that's so clearly about U.S. power. It's not just about stability. It's not just about peace and protecting these countries. Um, it's about going after Russia. It's about going after China. It's about um, expanding U.S. dominance. It's a tool for U.S. power as an alliance. Um, it, I don't think it actually is a great benefit to the European powers that are involved because it hamstrings them. What Europe has gone through is basically they've been forced to take actions that are detrimental to their own people. You know, rather than having those links to Russia, which would give them an incentive to pull back from the war and try to bring Russia down from their enraged position, trying to get them to pull back their forces, trying to get them to make peace with the Ukraine, then what you have is a U.S. that is saying, we do not want peace. We want this war. Um, it's good for, as you're talking about, the weapons companies. But it's also something we would like uh, them to have this quagmire that they're bogged down on. And so then Europe, which has its own interests that are different from the U.S., is basically kneecapping itself because it can't have Russia 
uh, trade. It can't have these links. It can't have peace. Um, it's told that that is off the table for the moment and that they have to reorganize their entire societies in Europe. And that's just so that they can protect their uh, cooperative relations with the U.S., that U.S. and Europe relationship. And so that's the Western world. And and I think that NATO is looking to expand so it can go from Russia to also being able to counter China. And this is this is the fear that the U.S. has. I mean, the, the fear is that people within U.S. are looking at the end of American empire and they're trying to prevent it from happening. But I but uh, they're in denial. We are in a multipolar world and those countries, um, especially China, are going to make decisions and which we cannot counter because we do not have the power to stop them from making those decisions about those countries that are their neighbors. Now, uh, for for Assange, uh, Julian Assange. An okay, let me get my right banner. I got to get my right banner. All right. Continue, okay. please. All righty. So Julian Assange, still in Belmarsh, still um, languishing as a jailed journalist, unfortunately. Uh, you may have seen that his family are talking about how they're not sure he's going to survive. Uh, there's an appeal that has been filed. Uh, they're out touring this documentary, which I haven't been able to see yet, called uh, Ithaca, but his his brother worked on it with some other filmmaker. And uh, I am hoping that at some point they're going to do dates here in the U.S. so I can go see this film that was put together. But it's uh, Australia. There's been some great movement politically. Uh, the government there is increasingly talking about Julian Assange. They haven't taken concrete action, but there's been lip service, at least paid towards taking care of their citizen. Uh, just to remind people, Julian Assange is an Australian citizen. He's not an American citizen. He's not from here. It's one of the most ludicrous parts of this case that we think we can impose our law against Julian Assange. Like he has to follow U.S. politics, that he has to obey orthodoxy, that he has to, you know, uh, do what Hillary Clinton says. And if he doesn't, then he should be prosecuted by our Justice Department. Um, and, uh, so, so that's still something that boggles my mind. There are two appeals that have been filed. I'm looking forward. I'm not looking forward, but in the future, I'm going to cover those hearings. I would suspect the high court of justice has to decide to take those appeals, but there's one against home office secretary, pretty Patel, who's just, you know, as bad as Nancy Pelosi, if not worse as oh, a yeah. human being. Um, um, she was deporting people to Rwanda, immigrants in UK to Rwanda. There was a big crisis over that. She's an awful person. And um, so uh, there's an appeal over how she handled and approved the extradition request. And then there's a separate appeal uh, that involves the initial judge's decision back in January 2020. Okay. And this is where it gets confusing. Uh, but I'll wrap up. Uh, but just to say that it gets confusing because that judge did spare Julian Assange's life initially in uh, in January four on January fourth, twenty twenty one, and then that meant that the U.S. government had to appeal, and then they eventually won. Uh, so there were a lot of issues with that decision because it did not hold that Julian Assange was a journalist who had press freedom rights. It it did not say that this was a political offense that Julian Assange has been charged with, that what the U.S. is going after him for 
might not be a crime in other countries. Um, and so therefore he shouldn't be extradited. And that's what they're challenging. So they're going to go to court and in a separate appeal, they're going to make all these claims that we've been talking about for years and years, along with the mental health and physical health issues, along with the threat of cruel and inhuman treatment that we had talked about, which was a key part of the first round of appeals. But as somebody who has a book coming on Julian Assange uh, in February 2023 that I hope everyone will read, um, I had to put this together as a guidebook for a U.S. trial. Uh, and that's just the fact of our reality that I had to prepare that, uh, and even his family is prepared, that most likely the appeals process is not going to save Julian Assange and he will be put on a plane. And in sometime in 2023, uh, March, April, he'll be here in the U.S. He'll be arraigned in the Eastern District of Virginia in Alexandria, uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. And then he'll be uh, facing a trial for these Espionage Act charges. And uh, so uh, that the fact that we're, we are this far, nothing has stopped. Uh, the UK government won't stop it. Uh, the Biden White House won't drop the charges. And they're also cowards. They won't answer questions. You know, a lot of times, I'll, I'll, the last thing I'll say, which I think is important, a lot of people always say to me, the media doesn't care about this case. Why don't they speak about it? Why don't they ask questions about it? Why don't I've actually watched press briefings with officials in the Biden White House. They do ask questions when Assange is in the news. What happens is those people who are the spokespeople say nothing. They won't answer the questions. They act like they're dumb questions to be asked, or they act like they just heard a foreign language spoken to them and they can't speak. Excuse me, what, pardon? What, come again, huh? huh? Uh, kind of like Nancy Pelosi when she was asked about um, right. training. Uh, but uh, then uh, that's why they don't have anything. Like when these reporters ask their question, they don't get anything in return and then they burn their question. And so now they come back to their media organization and they have nothing to use for that day. So can you blame them for saying that the next time they go there, they're not going to ask about Julian Assange? They know that they're not going to get anything from those officials. So they, these, these, uh, the Biden White House is effectively stonewalled and, um, and, and created this wall of silence and they don't feel like they should be held responsible. I mean, it was telling, like, I think I told you this earlier, that they did a report on the Biden administration and freedom of the press. And what they were able to find is that they were able to get responses on all kinds of different issues related to press freedom. And then when they mentioned Julian Assange to someone at the Justice Department, that person went cold and wouldn't like cooperate and answer the question and was just like, you're not going to get anything from me on that. So I think they're embarrassed. I think that they know that the entire world is aligned against them. There isn't a single human rights, civil liberties, um, or press freedom organization in the world that you can name to me that supports prosecuting Julian Assange. Some of them are weaker than others, but by and large, they understand that this is a big threat to freedom of expression everywhere. And uh, the Biden administration knows that they lose their credibility every day that this drags on. Anytime they say anything about human rights or democracy, they are actually uh, making it harder for anyone to take them seriously. 
Nobody in Bolivia or Mexico believes a word that they say. You actually, oh, that's one thing I should say. This is what I'll say before I shut up. So AMLO in Mexico, uh, Obrador, that was a big moment, I think. People, you know, if you want something positive to cling to, I think it was a big deal that uh, this, that that, that Obrador, the president of Mexico, um, came to the Biden White House on his visit, which, by the way, happened only because he refused to participate in a summit of democracy in uh, Los Angeles that was a farce since we refused to allow the leaders of Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba to participate in the summit for democracy. So they uh, said, well, we're not going to be going. We won't go. We'll boycott. And then Bolivia boycotted and uh, Honduras boycotted and other countries joined. So you only had like half of Latin America at the summit for democracy. And so he goes to the White House. He gave Biden a letter and he said to him, you know, this is this is all the reasons why you should not prosecute Julian Assange. You need to drop the charges. And then he said openly before that meeting that if you're not going to drop the charges, you should return the Statue of Liberty to France, which was amazing. It's awesome. (laughs) It's awesome. Actually, I've been thinking about this and I think the only way that I would consider ever voting for whoever the next Biden disciple is, is if they pardon Assange. Like, that's the only thing. Like, that that would probably be the only thing at this point wherein they I could have be bought with my vote um, because I don't believe them on anything else. So if they were to do that, it would at least be, you know, tangible. Um, so, yeah, I, to me, that's like the biggest issue. And nobody in, you know, any position of power seems to be saying or doing anything about it. Yeah. It's still stunning to me. I mean, it's still stunning to me because you have the precedent of people in the Obama White House uh, and the Obama Justice Department who recognized that they should not go cross this line. I guess we're talking about another red line. And you should not be prosecuting Julian Assange because then you're going to set a precedent legally that any future president could use to go after New York Times or Washington Post reporters or editors at those publications. Um, And I have a very real world example. I put this in my book. So you might recall that Donald Trump got angry with the Pulitzer Prize board because they gave a Pulitzer to all these Post reporters and New York Times reporters that worked on stories in 2017 on Russiagate. And he said to them, a lot has come out since you gave that award. And I think that that reporting is based on falsehoods and they should not have received an award. So Trump complained to them and wanted them to revoke the award to these reporters. And the Pulitzer Prize board decided they're going to stand behind those reporters and not revoke the award. But I use this to illustrate the fact that whoever is the next Trump disciple or whoever is the next extreme far-right fascist Republican may not stop at calling the press enemies of the state, may actually go a step further, whether it's Mike Pompeo or somebody else, in having their Justice Department go after reporters in order to stop them from doing reporting that exposes what the administration is doing, especially if they feel like you know, the language of the Espionage Act is one in which I could easily see a Republican uh, explicitly manipulating. You know, it's anyone who will 
publish information with the intent to cause injury to the United States. And you could see an administration under a Republican. I could even see a Democrat. But I think it would start with the Republicans of saying, you know, I'm the United States. I am running the United States. You are trying to injure my administration. Ergo, you are trying to damage and injure the United States. So I must indict you and charge you with violating the Espionage Act, which is a seditious law. So that's all these are. This is a, a law left over from the early 1900s when they went after people. It's an anti-communist law, and it was used to go after the left wing primarily. And so this is something that uh, you could easily see a Republican go after establishment reporters. So we can't sit here and pretend like they're safe. And so all the people in the Obama White House knew that, in the Obama Justice Department knew that, and many of them uh, came back with Biden. Uh, some of them got even better jobs than they had when they worked for Obama. And yet I think it shows you the creep in our society that like we've had this drift more and more towards uh, fascism. And uh, it's, you know, it's still stunning to me that people don't always have the epiphany in their minds that they should. When we look at how there are people in the Republican Party who are leaving the party to become Democrats because it's getting too extreme, but then the Democratic Party doesn't move in a more sane direction. It actually keeps on drifting further and further toward the right. So what all we're saying is instead of having a center left and maybe a right wing party, we now have a right of right center party. party. And an extreme party. No, you have a right of center party and then you have a right wing party. Or a fascist yeah. party. You have a fascist party and you have a right of center party. I don't even consider them right of center. And based on most of the metrics that are done around the world, they are the Democratic Party as today is a right wing party. They're That's the, true. Can I just say something? The, the problem isn't so much that Assange or people are being charged with these things, right? That that's I mean, yeah, that's a that's a problem. But the bigger issue is that truth is not a viable defense. Uh -huh. And that that is where the problem is. Because if you want to go after someone and say they've harmed us, you should be, they can say, yeah, I did, but it was true. And that's sufficient. Like, yeah. so, so it isn't so much that there's laws to protect against that. It's that our first amendment isn't countering it and that truth is nowhere to be found. So if truth was the, is the defense, then none of this would be happening. And again, I still think it gets back to the fact that there are countless people, especially very privileged individuals who do not know real world struggle and don't care for real world struggle, have been severely mentally damaged by Trump becoming the president. And their worldview was completely decimated uh, as a result. And they are willing to throw out, listen, there were people who, and in many ways, rightfully so, completely mentally scarred by 9-11. I saw the second plane hit the tower. Uh, you know, th there are things to be said for how, as a result of something that I have no doubt that we, you know, perpetuated in the first place, became this whole, let's get rid of our fourth, fifth, and sixth amendment because people are scared now, and now we can really take control. If people think that we will not live in a world where people, millions, hundreds of millions will be subjugated for the purposes of the rich having everything that they can possibly get on this planet while they're here. 
You're out of your mind and you haven't read your history because history always repeats itself. And we have to look at this right now in, in concluding this conversation that the idea that we think that we can do everything that everyone talks about in terms of, oh, my God, what if Trump gets into office again? It doesn't matter at this point. We don't have a democracy anymore. It's a question of whether or not we can actually get it back. That's the question now. Because everyone is thinking, oh, my God, we're not going to be able to have a democracy again. Like the democracy ended in 2016. No, it ended a long time ago. When you ended technically, it ended in 2000 when the Supreme Court decided the presidential election. That's really when it ends. Oh, it's a lot of things. But if you look at what most people want and you look at what the disconnect between what our policies are, we absolutely do not have a functioning republic. There's no way. So it's it's so dysfunctional. And the fact that people think that the president in and of itself is the problem just really shows to me it's always indicative of our horror education system here that people are so ignorant. There are people in this country who actually believe that Donald Trump is more powerful than Bill Gates. Like you, you, have to be, you have to be so disconnected from reality. But that's what they're taught. That. That's what they're being taught. And that's what their media yeah. tells them. Whatever TV, whether you're watching Fox or MSNBC, you're being told that Trump is the almighty, all powerful. And if you ever needed more proof of just how, I mean, listen, that doesn't mean that there isn't the possibility of having a commander in chief that really does the will of the people. That movement is possible, and I thought Bernie could have could have gotten there, but not enough people were willing to say, all right, well, we're, we have to take this all the way. Now, what I see more than anything else in lieu of Biden's presidency is that presidency is that he is not in control. And you <laughs> He's not even not in control of himself. It could not be any more <laughs> obvious considering his, considering his cognitive decline. All right, Kevin, and have you seen him shaking hands with invisible people? Yes. Yeah, that's all that's all jokes and everything. But in, in reality, <laughs> the only reason why Pelosi is going to Taiwan is because Biden isn't going. And people don't want to talk about the fact that Biden has covid again. And who knows what type of an effect that's having on his health right now? You know, everyone always assumed that Kamala was going to be the first madam president because they were going to force her into that seat. Maybe they will. I don't know. I mean, at this it's point, the only way she would have a chance of running is as okay. an incumbent. It's definitely, a very, yeah, it's definitely a very chaotic time, but I will say, and, I, and, and let's conclude on this note. After what happened last night, um, obviously to Andy Levin, it was terrible, but Rashida Tlaib is still in Congress. Cori Bush is still in Congress. And the state of Kansas says, get your fucking hands off my women. Yay, and Kansas. So, Yay, Kansas, by the way. Yeah. So, and it wasn't just by a little. It was no. by a two to one margin. That's, yeah. That says a lot. Right. And we're going to so, get into that in a second, but we're going to let Kevin go. So last Kevin, night we uh, can say nothing is the matter with Kansas. Nothing is the matter. Well, listen, Thomas Frank is definitely in a good mood today. I can tell you that. Yeah, much. right. Guys, if you're not currently checking out the work at Shadowproof, make sure that you get over there. Make sure that you check out all of the work that Kevin has done regarding the Assange case. Kevin's everywhere. If you just type in his name, he kind of comes up all over the place. He's got articles in all sorts of places. Yes. Much like other journalists. Well, we we, we do have our favorites. Much like, uh, you know, when it comes to, uh, certainly on the domestic side, we obviously are very fond of Jordan Chariton and Status Quo, but the work that you do over at Shadowproof is fantastic. 
Of course, we think extremely highly of Rania Kalik over at uh, Breaking News. Uh, you know, the, the work that you guys do cannot be appreciated enough because there isn't enough journalists out there that are doing it these days. And the fact that you were obviously so gracious, uh, you know, to come on on obviously short notice to just get us up to speed with what's going on, why this is obviously a very precarious situation that we're in right now. Uh, you know, the, the more we as Americans are informed, the more we can speak out against the atrocities of the empire. And like you said, Kevin, the empire is uh, it's kind of going in many ways through its death rows right now. And the, the more we hasten it through to the end, the faster we can start moving in the right direction. So anything you want to plug before you go, the floor is yours. Yeah, I want to plug. But I also just want to say with great frustration to Nancy Pelosi and pick your favorite swear word. This wasn't on the list, Nancy. This wasn't supposed to be a crisis. We have all kinds of crises. Like in my head, dealing with Taiwan and China was not supposed to be on the list for August. So anyways. So much uh, you know what? Well, so Kevin, I will assume you will be filing this as your grievance for this year's Festivus. So yeah, yeah, we will yeah, yeah, this, we, this we'll keep that in yeah. mind. So if you go to the dissenter.org, that's my newsletter covering whistleblowers. Is it with T-H-E in front? Yeah, T-H-E-Dissenter.org. Great site. Not Substack. Um, and also, uh, I do the show with Rodney Kalik on Otherized Disclosure, which just became a part of the dissenter uh, because I had people complaining about Patreon. So I'm really excited about that and continuing that work. And I thank you for having me on your show. Thank you, Kevin. It's always so good to get real information from time to time. Thank always you for sharing. Thanks for coming on. Bye. He's so cute. We need to talk. We need to briefly talk about the Kansas thing, because I thought that I had been telling you. Well, I've been telling I told you. Hold on. Before you continue scrolling banner to the bottom and just hit the like button, please. Did you get my text, by the way, that I said? Okay. Okay. We'll make sure. Okay. Oh, sorry. Wrong one. Peter likes it how he likes it. Everybody. I got to get the right scrolly. All right. So when, when I saw this in Kansas and people are being very surprised because you would think that it wouldn't be that wide of a margin, like they maybe would have thought it would have been closer or maybe not even happen. And I had this eye opening thing over the past few days where I learned that someone who I consider to be one of the most conservative Christian Southern Baptist people that I've ever met, and they were opposed to the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. And when I found that out, it really made me realize that this is such a done deal for most people that when you start breaking it down by state by state, like with initiatives and ballots, we will inevitably get back to where we need to be. But it's just a matter of how many people have to suffer in the meantime before that can happen. But, you know, the conservative people are not necessarily supportive of criminalizing abortion. See, there's a very big difference to them between not having an abortion and punishing women for having an abortion. So those people don't are not on board with this. I'm just like that was surprising to me. So it made me feel somewhat hopeful. I think it says a lot about the fact that DeSantis is completely staying out of this and he never misses an opportunity to lead. And even he's smart enough to know that, yeah, I can't really get into this because it's not a winner. And he knows that. And if DeSantis knows it's not a winner, then you definitely know it ain't a winner. So the fact that they went down this path, but again, who, who, who cares about things like this? Here's what I say to every woman 
um, in any power position that are pushing anti-choice legislation, specifically shout out to Aaron Grawl in Indian River County. But I got to tell you, a little part of me is wishing some ectopic pregnancies on y'all. Little part of me is thinking you might need to deal with some shit and jump through some hoops and have some sort of health issues because they're just not getting it. I, there is a special place in hell for anybody who has a uterus who thinks they should control anybody's uterus. Well, I also believe, and, and this is something that I would love to be able to see, because I don't know if they can actually break it down this way, but I would love to see the vote splits in Kansas in terms of, let's say that the vote splits were about 65-35, which is what it looks like the final tally was. Yeah. I'd How like many to know what percentage of men voted yes and what percentage of men voted no. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll be able to find that. I'm sure we'll be able to find that. And and obviously, there is an inordinately amount more of men that seem to feel the need to shut down my reproduction and my whole choice. Oh. Um, but it's still, and yet, I sort of look at them as boys are stupid and they're kind of ignorant and they don't know any better and they have some serious insecurities, maybe. Well, I've you know, always maintained that a lot of it just has to do with the fact that a lot of these men can't get laid and that they don't well, like women. I who, think yeah, there's women, they don't like women having casual sex and things like that. It's, it's, it's every, I'm telling you, most of this stuff is Freudian shit. It always has been. It's always about, I can't get what I want. So I'm going to, yeah. You well, because the truth is, is that people that are happy and content with their own lives don't get involved in no, other people. Absolutely business. not. Not so, at all. Why would so that? I, I think that small penis could be a large part of it. I think that the women that want to do it, I cannot imagine the sort of like how repressed and like uptight and like just wound yeah. up these women are. And for someone like Erin Grawl, by the way, she has three daughters. She has three young daughters. And I, you know, I, I hope for her sake that they're all just so smart and savvy about, you know, reproduction. I, I imagine that people that are anti-choice are also anti-sex education. So good luck to you with those girls, Erin. I hope none of them end up like, you know, raped or I don't know, let's say just having wanna, an ectopic pregnancy. Just, just want to point out again that it wasn't Ralph Nader. It was 300,000 Democrats in the state of Florida that voted for George W. Bush. And that is why Sam Alito and John Roberts are on the Supreme Court. Now, you will never hear anybody in Democratic corporate media talk about that. No, nope. that's the truth. And we would not be facing this catastrophe today. In addition, as Jen and I have said many a times before, had... Wasserman Schultz not done what she did during the primary in 2016, either Hillary or Bernie would have won the primary fair and square, and either Hillary or Bernie would have been the president. There would not have been enough of a split in order for the conclusion to go in the direction of somebody like Donald Trump. Eventually enough people said, nah, the hell with it. It's not even a real democracy anyway, so we might as well just go for the person who's going to throw a Molotov cocktail on. And well, I did. sort of saw it like a Band-Aid situation. And I said from the beginning that I thought Trump would facilitate the revolution. And while I am a person of nonviolence, I am also a person of history. And I have not heard of a successful nonviolent revolution. So it's going to, I mean, it is what it is, people. It is what it is. And yeah. you say it like, oh, it would have been Hillary or Bernie. I don't think there was any universe wherein Hillary was being president. And I would also point out, unfortunately, that she's still in charge. She's still in charge very much at the top of the party. If anybody thinks that Kamala or Pete 
are not just like Clinton Manchurian candidates. I don't know what news you're watching. <laughs> no, you're watching MSNBC. But but well, certain- I mean, listen, Haley, Haley Stevens, who is the opponent of Andy Levin, uh, proudly shared her endorsement of from Hillary Clinton. Oh, I mean, imagine I think that. that's a sign. You know, on the Democrat, on the Republican side, they have the only person in the Republican Party in their history that they really hold any type of effigy towards is Reagan. That's it. They do not look most of them are trying to get as far away from Trump as they can. They all want to get away from the Bushes. They do not. Uh, embrace any further history other than the ones that they really thought stood out. Well, like now they Clinton. have the Obamas on their team. They don't need the Bushes anymore. They got no. the Obamas. But the Democratic elites, if you will, so much of this liberal societal elite, they're going to be talking about the Clintons and the Obamas for decades, for decades. There's not this- in a good way, but not in a good way. No. History will not look kindly on any of what they Well, it doesn't heard. matter because they don't have a clear sense of history. In their mind, everything is correct on their side and everything is wrong every, everywhere else. You see, they were for so long used to just this idea that there's just a split between the right and the left. There isn't any. No. There's a split between right and wrong. Or and top and bottom. Top and bottom is really what the split is, you know? I mean, and, and something recently I just saw um, – I was watching The Hill. I don't normally do that. Um, But there was a piece on Andrew Yang and, you know, sort of some of the stuff that's been going on with the forward party and this whole idea of not left, not right, but forward. But the reality is, people, we don't have a left. We, we have a left in terms of populace, but we don't have a left in terms of government representation in government. And, and so that's the problem. How can we don't need a middle? We need a left. And the problem that a lot of people are not understanding about the viability of the forward party, regardless of whether it's got Democrats and Republicans, all of you people need to get it through your head that it's about having another option, which puts the Democrats and Republicans in a precarious situation where they have to come and get votes. That's the point. Right. Well, and also the truth is what will make or break it for me. Um, and actually, I'll give props to Brianna Joy Gray because I thought she said it very right on. Like the two things that they really need to be embracing is no corporate money and an anti-war platform. And yeah. that those those are the two things that would have the greatest chance of pulling the most people. Those are the t- those two issues have like the biggest support right from the majority of people and certainly people that are sick of the parties. Agreed. And yet. So while focusing on ranked choice voting, and that obviously that's key, I think that they need to have, their message needs to be more than just not right, not left, because what does that really mean? You know, and I, and I think that that's going to be determined. And if Andrew can do this without corporate influence, then I will continue to be supportive. But, you know, I don't know. So the jury is still out on that for me, whether or not it'll be have corporate backing. It's definitely got corporate backing, and we are obviously not members of the forward party. But as I said, what this really comes down to is whether or not there is another viable option that is out there. The second that a third option becomes viable is the second that the Democrats and Republicans have to fight for votes. Same problem is happening right now. And by the way, we will conclude on this note. Matthew Ho won his case. He's going to be on the ballot as a Green. And again, 
We have no love for the Greens whatsoever. But hey, do don't like, say that. I have some love for the Greens. But, okay? <laughs> it's, but it's more about the fact that Matthew is a very solid candidate. Now, if the Democrat and Republican candidate in North Carolina. Sherry Beasley, by the way, I'm not buying your nonsense. Who Sell Beasley? It yeah, sell yeah. it elsewhere. If you don't support universal single payer health care, you don't support health care for everyone. I yeah. want to hear about access to affordable health care. Let me tell you something. If, if, Matt, if Matthew is able to raise a few million dollars, he's going to have a voice in that general election. And you're going to have a really hard time telling people he's wrong because he wants universal health care, a Green New Deal and a living wage. How the hell are you going to fight against that? You can't. Eventually, Especially because he has a veteran party. Especially because he has the veteran card as well. He you does. know, that it adds a lot of credibility to somebody who's a lefty or green to have been, you know, served, to have served. I think that it really, does, especially in places that tend to be more rural and conservative. I agree. And North Carolina is extremely populist, people. It's very populist. It's not red, red. It's really populist red. No, so, no, no, when you're in the South, you know, South Carolina's red, Tennessee's yes. red. Uh, North Carolina uh, is a very interesting mix. Um, it it, you know, and yeah, there are conservative people there. But again, the conservative people there are not as right wing as you would have them think they are. Right. If I know the Southern Baptists that don't believe in prosecuting women for abortions, the right that is existing in reality is not as right as what is being portrayed by our representation, just the same as our that we don't have a left. So it's I just think that it's not a conservative liberal problem. It's a rich, rich and have and have not problem. And that's what this is. And I, I you know, they're playing silly games with stupid stuff. They're trying to get uh, Trump candidates. Democrats are trying to get Trump candidates. Um, in winning their primaries because they think it'll be easier to beat them. And it's, didn't we know that that, that Pied Piper strategy didn't serve us well? And they're still doing it now. Well, I don't understand. And, and like, how do the Democrats sit there and bash Trump in, on one hand, but then be endorsing or putting financial support behind Trump-backed candidates? And then saying, oh, because it'll be easier to beat them. You guys have a lot of faith in yourselves for people that have nothing. I don't know why you would think it would be easier to beat a crazy person with a person who is just a corporate whore. Well, it's Six to one half a dozen of the other. Well, it's kind of like the argument that was made, um, you know, regarding uh, student loan debt. You know, we put out a tweet that was very successful the other day as a result of everyone just acting like, oh, you know, there's no time. We have to save democracy. It's like, do you not understand that the reason why student debt becomes one of the biggest talking points in politics is because that's the biggest financial burden that most, you know, especially millennials and Gen Zers are facing. And they want to be able to live in a country where there's tuition free public college, you know, like there is in almost every other developed country. So yeah. the fact that this is a fight that even needs to be discussed is insane. Well, it's, it's interesting because people really like are again, are because our education is so bad, our education stays bad. So we're not taught things that his, we're not properly taught history. So people have no frame of reference. But we didn't always have public K through 12 people. That wasn't always a thing. That wasn't a thing. We didn't offer K through 12. So then when we started offering K through 12, and I cannot remember what year that was, is it like 
40s, like, well, I don't know. Whenever we started offering K through 12 public schools, okay, we only needed people to have a 12th grade education. Well, we're past that now. We need higher education. So why is it so difficult for people to add an additional four years uh, onto our public education? Like, because they don't know that we didn't ever have any public education. So well, I, we've I just- also been taught, we've, also been taught, we've also been taught very effectively to hate working people. Like that's, that's how it is. Well, even that, so then, but yet we need tradespeople too. I mean, the, the way they do it, I believe in, in um, Denmark is that people basically coming out of primary school can either go collegiate or trade. And yeah, there's testing involved because they just, you know, I'm sure there has to be some sort of thing, but um, basically they subsidize whichever path. It's, it's not, it's not, this isn't rocket science. No, they try to make it that way, but you know we know that there's uh, there's a limit to what they can convince people of. Yeah, and Kelly makes a great point. She's sixty five, and congratulations, you Kelly! Go, you, girl. Can act, you can now actually have health care. Wonderful. Yeah, and your I bet now you're going to say, "I got mine." You all don't need yours. Well, here's the bottom line: her college um, education costs less than five thousand dollars, and of course, the argument is. Well, that's 45 years ago. How do you compare one and the other? And then, of course, the answer is simply, well, if it was tracking concisely with where inflation is and where the value of the dollar goes, perhaps today that college would cost, I don't know, 12000 15000 I'm curious. Uh, Kelly, where did you go to college? I'd be curious to know. Yeah, you're expecting her to answer verbally. She can't. So, well, well no, we... but maybe she'll hear it and then write it in the chat and then you'll know better. Uh, South Carolina is definitely crooked. <laughs> Run by Hillary? Yeah. Well, and her little puppet, Jim. Jimbo. <laughs> That's terrible. Don't uh, do Marcel that. Be, get us in trouble. Marcel will be coming uh, after him. So, Boise State. Boise <laughs> State. So, let's see. That was in. I'm assuming that's Idaho. Yes, it is. I would, I would hope so. And so today, Boise State's tuition is uh, in-state is eight thousand a year, which is great. <laughs> That's actually very, very reasonable. But there are state. some states that are still very. North Carolina is very reasonable for in-state tuition. Yes, but well, actually, North Carolina, the University of North Carolina, is considered the best school for the dollar that you can go to in the United States. I know if you're an in-state student. I'm a reject. I'm a reject. I should have saved all my reject letters. UNC to this day, I think, is only like 7,000 a year. So, but that said, if you're an out-of-state student wanting to go to Boise State, it would cost you $25,000 a year. So comparing that- I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with out-of-state premium. And then if you want to establish residency, being able to get in-state, if you want to jump through those hoops, I don't have a problem with, with that. Yeah. I just think every state should have whatever their state, the state cost should be, your state colleges, your public schools should just be free. Sure. You know, like K through 12. But We're again, the problem is, is that higher education is much better in certain states than it is in other states. So you got to keep that in mind. Well, I, I believe in federal that. subsidizing of education and that well, there needs to be a baseline for everybody to get a quality education with local control over content based on what's needed in your area. All the more reason why we need a tuition-free public college with yeah. a specific focus on trade schools. 
Anyone who wants to learn a trade that is of value to the economy, could be a welder, could be a plumber, could be an electrician, it could be a mason, it doesn't matter. As far as I'm concerned, if you want to learn, we should be able to teach you, period. Yeah. And there are some schools, like there are some high schools, like public high schools that have those programs where you can get your associate's degree. Like there are some schools that offer and at those you can learn tech. So like there are some things that do that that is affordable, but it's for few and far between people that know where and how to find that. And it's it's very important. Why is this so difficult? Can't we just call it K through 16? I'm just going to start referring to this as K through 16. And I'm just going to keep saying that until it catches on, because, because really, that's all we're talking about. because unfortunately, our job is to inform as many people as possible in terms of how this all works. Uh, they don't really understand how it works. Uh, they assume that they do. And then they form conclusions about these things that make absolutely no sense. So with that said, uh, we don't have a plan just yet. Uh I'm not here next week. So it's going to, you know, it could be a whole week of pontificating with Peter. Well, we are going to have some very important guests that are going to be coming up on the show. We're not going to tell you when, but we will let you know. Nina Turner will be coming back to generational change very soon. We will have the very intelligent yet controversial Kim Iverson. She is going to come back to our podcast. I will yet again say I like Kim. I know her just personally and I like her and I you know, I hate people that crap on her because you don't agree with her. It's like well, that's sort of the argument about Sam Lawrence, who came on the podcast. Yeah, today. we do people. not agree with everything that Sam says, but we certainly no. like what he's what he's doing. And he's out there busting his butt trying to make a difference. And you got to applaud that. Uh, we would obviously love to have Lee Camp back on the show. Try to figure that out. He is in Sweden for the next few months. Maybe we'll do another afternoon show, Jen. So we, we should get. I want to get him and uh, him and the fiance girlfriend at the same time. They're cute. Uh, let's let's see if we can get Eleanor. Eleanor. Let's yeah. They, I forget the name of the show they do together, but they're adorable. I'd love to have the two of them on at the same time. I'm just saying. Yeah. And we will. Uh, we are also going to have um, the only guests that we have confirmed in the next couple of weeks on Wednesday the fifteenth. Uh, is it the fifteenth? No, it's the uh, Monday. Is it Monday the 15th? Yeah, Monday the 15th. Okay, so that's my first show back. Monday the 15th, we will have Lily Geismer, who uh, the, the book. I, okay, so she, she just, her book, her new book is called Left Behind. I don't have it. Uh, there's a, I don't have it in front of me to tell the subtitle. It did come today, so you can have the hardback. I've been doing it audiobook. Okay. And it really is, this book is very interesting, guys. This is where we learn from where the Democrats went askew in terms of working class values and where it got completely corporatized. And it's a really good analysis. And I think this is how we have to learn and to be able to, you know, evolve. So I, I'm yeah. looking forward to that. Well, we've obviously got a lot to cover when we get back. Uh, I will be back in town uh, tomorrow. Jen, of course, is heading back out of town. It looks like for a family trip. Uh, Do I need to pick you up at the airport? That would be wonderful if you could. It's going to be if late, I, though. Don't know then. Don't know. Ten. Yeah. 10. It's right on the borderline. It's like right on, it's we'll right see. On the we'll see. All right. Well, in the meantime, thank you guys as always for your amazing support. Hit the like button, subscribe. And if you're so inclined, Jen, please get it up there. As you know, we are always very appreciative of anybody who is willing Hold to become on. a patron 
of our channel. So please go to patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as $5 a month. You can become a supporter of our wonderful podcast. As you know, we have some important elections coming up. We want to make sure that we are able to support as many non-corporate candidates as possible. There's also a number of homeless care packages you want to put together. This is really the time of year where having them is essential because this is really when you have the most homeless people out. The warmer it is, the more they're going to be out on the streets. At least they can survive there, but we do not want it to be that way. We want to do everything in our capacity to help get people on their feet. Uh, Little by little, these uh, essentials can really make a difference. And of course, if you are so inclined, we also do things like beach cleanups and anything and everything that is to support small businesses throughout the area. So please go to patreon.com forward slash generational change. Five, 10, $25 a month. Your support means the world. And we really appreciate you all checking it out today. Oh, just one more thing, guys. Um, and, uh, I'm going to have to put it up the next time um, for you. But League of Women Voters is doing their school supply drive for the month of August. Right. Please check it out for donation sites. They're different this year. But um, yeah, new school supplies are definitely needed. And, and then I would. And if you guys are not interested in becoming a patron and you just want to make a contribution to generational change so we can help the League of Women voters with the school supplies, you can do that as well. Uh, that yes, I'll even give you. You know what we need to start putting up on our screen is our cash app. Okay, let's do that. Okay, do so that. I think it's. Well, let's not think. Let's make sure. No. All right, hold on. That's us. By the way, we need to change our outro in this video. Okay. Because it still has the old uh, Twitter handle. Flashes, by Just letting you know. Okay? Sounds good. All All right. Appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. We'll see you Monday. Bye, all. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.